Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. The theme of season two is Unprocessed, where each week we deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Horan. Welcome to this episode of Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, John Horan, and I'm here with two very special guests. I'm here with Sarah Coons, the state archivist. Hi. And Becky McGee Langford, the assistant state records administrator. Hello. All right, and we have these two very special guests on, as I say, to talk about something that is quite national, actually, in, in its importance, but also very specific to North Carolina. It is America 250. It's the celebration. It's, the, it's a reflection on the 250th birthday of the United States of America. And in doing that, we thought we would talk about some, of the, some themes and some concepts related to who we are 250 years on. But first, I thought it might be interesting to define America 250. I'll, I'll take a crack at that. So in addition to my day job directing the State Archives, I also have the honor of directing the Department of Natural and Cultural Resources efforts to plan for the commemoration. And so as a little bit of background, America 250th began with the founding of the National Commission in 2016. It's called the Semi-Quincentennial Commission big word. (laughs) Don't like to have to spell it, but think about it this way. Semi equals half. (laughs) And Quinn is five times the centennial. So it's half of 500 or 250. We just call it a 250. How about that? (laughs) That works for me. Okay. The mission of the National Commission is to commemorate the 250th anniversary with inclusive programs that are going to inspire Americans to renew and strengthen our experiment in democracy. And their vision is that this commemoration would have shared experiences that are going to ignite our imaginations. They're going to elevate our diverse stories. They're going to inspire service in our communities and demonstrate that lasting durability of the American project. So that's kind of the national picture um, of, of their goals and their mission. And then drilling down to the state level, in October of 2019, Governor Cooper recognized the committee that was established by our department as having the responsibility for carrying out our state's semi-quincentennial activities and programs. So to do that, we've organized a committee with representatives from commissions and museums, historical societies, heritage groups, and other interested organizations to connect with us and start talking about ways that we can really elevate this commemoration for a number of years in in North Carolina. Our committee is connected to that national commission. We have regular meetings of the statewide committees and commissions, so that's great. And then we're also doing some regional planning, so thinking about what we can do with our neighboring states as well, so many special topics of interest. In North Carolina, we're going to begin the commemoration officially in April of 2025. We like April to think about Halifax Resolves. That's an important date in our calendar. It's on the flag. So we want to maintain that as our kickoff point. We think that's important. And then in alignment with our agency's general strategic goals, some of the goals of the commemoration are going to include things like we would like to reach all 100 counties. We would love it if all counties would do something 
um, possibly at the high water mark of the national celebration, which will be July 4th, 2026. We hope in, that we will create a portfolio of diverse programs on multiple platforms. So that'll be in person, online, video, you know, all kinds of things. We want to generate and distribute a lot of educational resources for teachers and families. And we want to connect communities with our statewide efforts as well as the national efforts. And then in North Carolina, too, it's important, I think, to remember that there's a lot of, of history of the war that takes place near the end of the Revolutionary War period. So we're going to continue commemorating the 250th in North Carolina, um, even as the national efforts are, are not quite as robust. I mean, I, th I think I said the high water mark is going to be July 4th of 2026. We're going to continue on to the, to the full 250th of the whole war. We're, we're really aiming for those those goals in our commemoration. That's fantastic. I think it's it's really interesting that there's a, I mean, it's sort of indicative of the United States, right? There's a national <laughs> 1776 right. to 2026, and, and there's also each state has its own little, can change the ends and the starts and all that sort of thing. It's fantastic. What other kind of concepts or themes are coming out of this project? <laughs> Well, I think you heard some goals in the mission statement of the national group, and those are reflected also in North Carolina. We're really aiming to explore all 250 years of our history. To do that, we, we feel like this is really an opportunity to commemorate on the full sweep of our nation's past. And so we want to think about how have we lived into the ideals of the revolution and celebrate those examples of liberty, courage, self-sacrifice from any time period. We're really aiming to engage people with the, with this work and, and have a broad perspective. So we've developed two major concepts that we are using, and those include Revolutionary NC, which of course can speak to all those Revolutionary War events and people and places, and then a concept we're calling When Are We Us that really allows us to live into the full 250 years of our history and engage stories that are from more modern time periods that speak to those same values that we see in the revolution. And I should add too that from those concepts, we have developed three major themes that we're organizing around. And you can fit Revolutionary War events or any other time period into these three themes. And we're hoping that they really resonate with people and spark interest and questions and ways for communities to connect their local stories with the larger arc of American history. So those themes include visions of freedom, a gathering of voices, and common ground. And for each of those themes, we have a statement that goes with it. Uh, visions of freedom, the statement is, the American Revolution was the beginning of a continual journey for North Carolinians to seek true freedom. And then for a gathering of voices, we say, North Carolina's many voices inspire future generations to create and lead. And then for common ground, we said, Places carry our stories of struggle, creation, and connection to one another. So I hope you can see from those thematic statements that it, it also allows us to incorporate other parts of the department, music, art, historic preservation, parks, you know, the outdoor environment. So we're really aiming to be very broad in our scope for the 250th programming. Those are some, some really interesting concepts. I think that maybe we can take, take some time now to explore each of those concepts. So, yeah, let's, let's maybe let's dive in, shall we? All right, let's jump in. <laughs> All right. Um, we've identified a few documents 
that we're going to use in in our work in the archives and then in the larger departmental work. And Becky is leading up our efforts in the archives to think through how we connect our collections to these stories. So we've pulled out a few, if you don't mind us sharing a few of our, of our favorites. Yeah, I'd love that. Okay. The first one I'll take for the concept of visions of freedom. This is coming from our vault collection, and it is a letter from John Adams to William Hooper. And other people, if you're familiar with revolutionary time period, you might recognize it as the basis for a pamphlet that John Adams published later, and it's called Thoughts on Government. I'll give you a little bit of backstory about it because I think it's important to understand how it comes to be. So in 1776, during the Second Continental Congress, two of the delegates from North Carolina, William Hooper and John Penn, were going to be helping. They had been tasked with helping with the development of the first state constitution. So they asked John Adams to provide some input on what makes a good government. And so Adams sits down and writes a letter to each of them close together in time period. Our vault item is the letter from March 27, 1776 to William Hooper. People hear about this letter. They know about its contents. Certainly John Adams was an influential revolutionary era leader. So he is asked to issue you know, similar letters to others. So he, he writes a couple more versions of it. There's slight differences in the versions. Um, he eventually publishes it in, in various places. So there's you know a few tweaks here and there, but essentially the concepts are the same. And you know, across all the different copies. The things that he's covering in there are ideas about government that he thought about and wrote about and was wrestling with in the years leading up to independence. So they're kind of representing some things that he had advocated for, including the importance of two branches in the legislature, the idea of representation based on a geographic area. So things like that. So this is an excerpt from the the letter that sort of speaks to some of these ideas that Adams focused on in his writing. And I apologize in advance. It's in a style that's not not used today. So there may be a stylistic differences in your ear. Therefore, I lay it down as a maxim that the judicial power should be distinct both from the legislative and the executive. Now, if you have your legislative in one assembly and the executive in another, and the judicial power leans to either, it will naturally join with that and overbalance, overbear, and overturn the other. The legislature, therefore, should consist of more than one assembly. Let the representative body then elect by ballot from among themselves or their constituents a distinct assembly to consist of the most experienced, accomplished, and virtuous men, which for the sake of perspicuity we will call a council. It may consist of any number you please, say twenty or thirty. When these two bodies are thus constituted, an inquiry will arise. Is the legislature complete? I think not. There should be a third branch, which for the sake of preserving old styles and titles you may call a governor, whom I would invest with a negative upon the other branches of the legislature, and also with the whole executive power, after divesting it of most of those badges of domination called prerogatives. I know that giving the executive power a negative over the legislature is liable to objections, but it seems to be attended with more advantages than dangers, especially if you make this officer elective annually, and more especially if you establish a rotation by which no man shall be governor for more than three years. So what I love about this letter is I, I, well, first of all, I love it that John, it's all in John Adams' handwriting and that he just sits down and he writes this letter out, you know, these concepts, these are big thoughts. And I like the idea that they, they brought this back and William Hooper gives the letter to Thomas Burke, I believe, who was was working on the, the Constitution, leading that effort. And 
they use it when they're drafting the first state constitution. So I just, every time I hold it, I just get a, a chill thinking about the hands that it was in and the concepts that are in it and, and those things. Yeah, absolutely. I got a chill now just listening to you talk about it. So <laughs> I'm thinking about this letter. I mean, how big is it physically? Can you, can you describe it that way? Sure. It's a, let's see, I can look at the images of it. It's about four or five pages, regular size sheet of paper. And, you know, it's six pages, I should say. It, it very much bears the mark of someone who sat down and is writing it. It's not this fancy illuminated manuscript. So, you know, he starts off with dear sir. He scratches out a word early on that he wants to choose a different word. It's not anything more than just a regular letter format from the time. It's, you know, pen and ink, a little bit uh, brown over the years, but it's still extremely legible digital copies online in our digital collections. Plus there's also transcriptions of it that have been made because again, it was published later and it's a very influential writing. So it's easy to access. For sure. I, I love that. I think the piece about it being transcribed and put online and people mm-hmm. can go go to it right now and, and take a look and, and get connected with John Adams, you know, second president of the United States. This is this is not this is not, you know, nobody. This is somebody and this is that we have this piece that connects us to that to that time period. I think it's fantastic. I like the idea of thinking of a connection to our leaders that had these thoughts. They're, they're creating these thoughts anew. We Things we take for granted, aspects about three branches of government, checks and balances, you know, two chambers and the legislature, that these were new to them. And it was, it was you know, being discussed and talked about and written about and, and shared. I like that. Yeah, it's amazing. And you know, it's not the it's not the oldest thing we have, and it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not the only thing we're going to talk about today. So I think maybe we can transition into the next piece that we're going to share. Well, John, I've got I've actually pulled out one that's a private collection. So it's an individual's writing, and his name is Joseph Graham. He was a general in the Revolutionary War, and he also held several elected offices in the state as well in Mecklenburg and Lincoln counties, including the Register of Deeds office at one point. He was also a state senator and as well as an iron manufacturer in Lincoln County during the revolutionary period. So, you know, he's a busy, busy man, general and still running a business and all of those kind of things. But he, he even after the revolution was a commander of the militia that was involved in the Creek Indian War in the 1814. So he even transcends past the revolution. But the part of the collection, the private collection, that I want to focus on are those Revolutionary War recollections. And what we have are drafts of articles and letters that he wrote concerning the military actions that took place in the western part of North Carolina from approximately June of 1780 to March of 1781. So in some ways, I I think of him as kind of the embedded press person who's in there writing down what the troop actions are going on. These things were published later, but I just, I like the idea of him sitting there, you know, writing and saying, you know, we moved here, we moved there. But some of the battles that he was involved in and wrote accounts about were the Battle of Rumsor Mill, which took place in June of 1780, and accounts of the Battle of Cohen's Ford and the Battle of Claps Mill. What's interesting about these, and I'll tell you a little bit about each one of the battles because they're not they're not the spectacular Guilford Courthouse or some of the other Western actions. They're they're small strategic battles. Cowan's Ford took place in February of 1781, 
and it happened in uh, northwestern Mecklenburg County. What they were doing at that ford was trying to prevent or delay the British troops from crossing the Catawba River. So that is the key part of that action. The part of the, the collection is that he actually has drawn a sketch of the battlefield. So you actually get to see where the troops were in, any, in the movement that goes on in his own pen. He, you know, he's sitting there drawing what his remembrances are of that battle. Claps Mill is, a, is another small encounter that happened near Beaver Creek, which is near Alamance Battlefield. You know, in this particular one, it's kind of the lead up, the, the precursor to what eventually happens later, um, Guilford Courthouse. And what's significant about this particular little skirmish where Mr. Graham is involved is, or General Graham is involved, is he's really the only person who wrote about it. So he's, you know, this is one of the few places where we get that information about that particular battle. Again, he's done a sketch of the battlefield the troop actions, the troop movements, those kind of things. There's also in the collection his Revolutionary War pension application and also a statement that he did in 1832 that describes his military service. What I find really significant about this set of papers, it is it it is a personal recollection. It's it's, you know, his impression of the war, his, what his experiences of the war, and it is about North Carolina. The actions that took place were in North Carolina. They weren't up in Virginia. They weren't at Yorktown. They weren't at all these other significant battles further up the Dan and Virginia and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's the western part of the state, the part of the state that he was the most passionate about, where he's writing about his involvement. So that, those are why I, I picked this particular document. Yeah, it sounds like a fantastic a piece. I think that, you know, I mean, maybe we would have known about those battles, that they existed. But to have something, the only thing that describes the battle, I mean, that, that, that's another chill. Yeah. You know, this is, this is you know, you're talking about 250 years ago, and this is all we have that, that, that's a marker for something that, that, that was pivotal. Right. I'm sure at the time they thought it was exactly pivotal. And now, mm-hmm. you know, we're looking back and we're, we're recollecting on this. And I think that's amazing, especially the personal side of it. And, and you know, you combine this this story, this piece is personal and the John Adams letter that's political, but they're both from leaders. I'm wondering, do you all have sort of documents or items that you picked out that are maybe more of sort of a common person, more of a less grand less leadership and more you know every day one of the things that i've become passionate about um is the is actually the revolutionary war soldier themselves you know what are the day-to-day activities of the soldier and as the commemoration gets closer and people start thinking about their ancestors i think that's going to be an area where people are going to be interested are you know was my ancestor a revolutionary war soldier or involved in the revolution in some way. And what I have pulled out here is an area where you may not think about it. I have looked at and pulled out some records that are specific to African-Americans who served in the Revolutionary War and how we come about doing that research and determining their ethnicity. And and one of the things I don't think people realize is there was a, a lot of free people of color who served in in the war. 
And that's another thing that I think is important to bring to the forefront. So I, if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna indulge myself for a few minutes and, and go over and go over um, like three three of these gentlemen and and kind of how you researching Rev War soldiers isn't isn't an easy task because the, a lot of the a lot of the records are are, are d- deal with the payment of you know the monies owed and that type of thing. So. So the personal nature sometimes is can be lost. What I've tried to do here is pull documents that do get into the personal nature as well as the payment kind of thing. The first gentleman I want to talk about is, um, his name is Edward Nickens. He was a, an African-American soldier who mustered for the war first in 1777 and then in 1779. We've determined or, that through the various records that Edward was deceased by December of 1792. And you may ask, well, how do we know this? Because they're not death certificates and that kind of thing for that period. But what we find is that his son and heir, Richard Nickens, petitioned the state of North Carolina in the General Assembly in December of 1792 for his father's back pay. This is one of the avenues that veterans would have in that, this period of time to collect the pay that was owed them was to, to was to go to the General Assembly and petition. And what we find in this particular petition is that Richard Dickens, his, his son, was initially denied because he didn't have sufficient information to support his claim. He goes back and in 1796 Richard obtains and submits a statement from a neighbor that supports the claim that his father was a soldier in the war and that he died in the army. We find that information in some Secretary of State's records and uh, in the military papers. And then further along in um, January 1798, Edward's heirs, we find in another set of documents that Edward's heirs received $239 in back pay. And we know that they consider his service, um, Edward's service, to have ended in 1780. So again, we can determine that he, you know, he passed away sometime around that 1780 period. And then finally, for, for Edward, we, we know in 1797 that Richard Nickens, his son, receives a land grant for his service. You know, what you see there is, you know, that's a lot of information that, you know, we've been able to gather just from one person about his his life and, and his heirs' lives. And so that's Edward. Did you have any questions about that, John, or I'll move on to the next guy? No, let's go to the next one. I just love the idea of those, you're connecting those documents, trying to figure out who's what and how long did he serve? Well, if we did, if we did this, then we know he served this long. I just love the way you, you determine that he... You know, had two tours of service and, and, and all of that. And so, yeah, let's, let's move on to the next individual and talk about... Okay. The next individual's name is William Orange. What we find with William is that he enlisted in the 3rd North Carolina Regiment of Halifax County. The record states that, and this is, this is a record that describes, gives physical descriptions. So this is, this is a valuable piece of information. The record states that William at the time of enlisting was 36 years old. He was 5'9". He was of black complexion. He enlisted for a 12-month tour of duty. He did it in Halifax County, like I said. 
and he was born in North Carolina, so he was a North Carolina resident. We find that out of the military collection, troop returns. What I find on this particular listing from Halifax County is the fact that there are a lot of African Americans from Halifax County enlisting at the same time. So you're looking at, you know, 10 or 15 on this, on this list. And so that's a valuable piece of information for, you know, other people doing this type of research or looking for, or even just looking for their African-American ancestors. It's a ready-made list for the Revolutionary War period. Other information I find in other documents, we know that he served as a private under Lieutenant Captain Joseph Mortfoot's group for nine months. We also know that his heirs received another one of those valuable Tennessee land grants, and he received 640 acres. It doesn't appear that they sold that particular one off, so we can possibly assume that some member, some of his heirs actually moved to to that area and assumed that grant. We'd have to go to we'd have to go to Tennessee to determine that, but still, you know, that's that's a that gives us a way to go and look. And then there are several different um, places within the general account books where he's mentioned receiving money that's owed him. So again, different records, different information. It, you know, and it's very interesting, you know, how we can glean knowledge about individuals this way. If you'll just let me have one more minute, I want to talk about George Pettiford because he's he's interesting as well. So. What I can tell from the records is that George Pettiford enlisted in Caswell County. And we can also determine from that record that even though he listed, enlisted in Caswell County, he actually, was actually from Granville County. He served under Captain Roger Moore, as well as Captain William Goodman for nine months. We have to jump forward to 1821 before we get to see his name again. But at that time, he's 63. He made a declaration in Granville County Court to obtain a Revolutionary War pension. So just like Edward Nickens did it in the General Assembly, you could also do it in your county court. You could petition for your um, pension. So he, he elected to go to county court to do this. And he, and he documents that, you know, all of that stuff I just listed about who he served with. And he came with witnesses, with with his statements, and uh, he had two witnesses said that they were acquainted with George and they knew that he had served in the Revolutionary War Army and that he's above board where that's concerned. And so we go a little bit further and we find that there's a couple of times where his widow is also wanting to get a widow's pension, and so she's presenting herself in front of the Granville County Court petitioning for the pension, and also working towards trying to get a bounty land grant as well for payment in 1855. So we're going, now we're getting into the mid-1850s and he's still around. But what I found the most interesting as I was doing research on this is, again, not these records, but the a record that I, when I was looking for George Pettiford's name, I found him listed with another group of individuals who were also seeking Revolutionary War pensions, and he was used. To, he was a witness to them trying to get their pensions. But what I found out was the person who was doing this particular research, so somebody contemporary to me doing the research, determined that Mr. Pettiford was not actually African American, but was actually Native American. That he was actually 
part of an established Native American tribe from the period. And they re- they recognized that because of the people who was testifying around him and also the familiarity with the Pettiford name as being a tribal name. So those are the things I have found with Revolutionary War soldiers that I have found very interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. All of that is amazing. It's it's. I think it's fascinating that you can find these things. You know, they're, maybe they're not plentiful, but I think that being able to find even a few of these things and making these connections with reasonable certainty is it's 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 amazing to me. And I like also that now we recognize that this person was African American and this person may have had more indigenous roots and 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 back then I don't think that 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 was as important right and so we're 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 kind of sussing those details out now I think it's really fascinating and and kind of shows uh, how far we've gone I mean and I think the other thing that I think our listeners might be interested in is that what you're doing is is researching a genealogy and I think that that's another thing that the archives in general is really good at and I want to make sure that we point that out at this point and say hey you know this is just what we've done based off of what we're, our interests are. But if you have a family connection, come on down and we'll, get, we'll, we'll try and get you all the way back as far as we can go. So I think that's another thing to point out. So we're talking about the Revolutionary War, and this is, this, these are the things that we've kind of come up with. But as we said, there are multiple concepts and multiple themes. And I wondered, what, what can we talk about with respect to the visions of freedom? Well, I'm happy to pick that one up. I pulled another item from our vault collection, another one of my favorites. So that seems to be a theme, my favorites from the vault. And this one is one that takes us into a little more modern time period. And it's a document, the full, or it's actually a book, I should say, not a document. It, the full title is North Carolina Constitutional Reader Being a Handbook for Primary Use in One Part. I can set the stage and tell you where this this book fits into the time period. So moving up in history to around 1900, there's a constitutional amendment in North Carolina that the aim was really to restrict voting, try to keep voting to white men. And so part of that amendment is going to develop ways to make it harder for non-white men to vote. And there are a variety of things that were included in the amendment that accomplished that goal. One of those things was there was a clause in the amendment that says, every person presenting himself for registration shall be able to read and write any section of the Constitution of the English language. So keep that in mind. That's essentially a literacy test. So that's where this book is going to come in in a minute to talk about the literacy test. So, okay, so the leaders that are developing this amendment say, all right, that's one way to do it. But then we also have to admit there's a lot of of white males who don't know how to read and write. So how do we get around that? And the other piece to the amendment was something that they call the grandfather clause. And that's a fancy phrase to say that they put in restrictions that said that you could get out of the literacy test if you were related to a voter as of 1867. So you'd have to go in and register and say, I, John Smith, was related to this person who voted in 1867. And part of the reason why that date is important is because even though the Civil War was over, very few African Americans were registered to vote in 1867. So very few are going to qualify under that. So that's the way around the literacy test for white males who couldn't read or write either. That's where this document, keep calling it a document, apologies, this book comes into play. It is published by a person who identifies as the principal of a school in Littleton. His name is G. Ellis Harris, and it's printed in 1903 at St. Augustine's here in Raleigh. I would be remiss to say that we are recording this on the 154th anniversary of the start of classes at St. Augustine's, which is a famous 
school that was founded to educate freed slaves. So that's I just that's sort of the through line there that this has been a, a centerpiece of education in the African-American community since the end of the Civil War. So this book is published and what the author is trying to do is he is trying to assist African-Americans with overcoming the burdens placed on them by the literacy test. So he's got sections in there. It's it's meant to teach people how to pass the test. So he's got sections in there on um, spelling, words that you might find in the Constitution, what is the actual text of the Constitution, things like that. Anything that he can think of that might be thrown into that test. He starts the book, in addition to the lessons, he starts it with an opening essay that he calls To My Colored Brethren. And this is where I kind of feel the voice of him as a, as a visionary of freedom. He says, be thrifty. This is how he closes out the essay. Be thrifty, every one of you. Accumulate property, build homes, educate yourselves and children, rear religious families, and let's go to the ballot box and cast our votes as intelligent citizens for our own choice of good men irrespective of party affiliation. So to me, I I feel like this book really speaks to the idea that freedom is a journey. Freedom did not drop from the sky in 1776 and fall in everyone's lap. Many people were excluded from the freedom in the Declaration of Independence, despite the, the language that was used. So this is someone who has a vision of empowering people to overcome hurdles to live into that ideal that we all get to vote for our representatives. And so that's why I enjoy the book. It's it's a small book. You asked before about what the letter from John Adams looks like. This is a very small book. It's almost like a pocket book that you could carry on your person. It's not in the best of shape. There aren't a lot of these around, so we're really excited to have one. So it's it's pretty pretty rare, so that's why we like to keep it in the vault collection, keep it really safe and sound sure yeah it's i i think first of all i think the anniversary on an anniversary you know (laughs) we're talking about an anniversary and you have this this piece here that's that's about a different anniversary i love that and then i think people people know but i don't know that people think about all the time how this the notion of freedom and liberty didn't just come out of the sky in 1776 that it is a a journey it it takes time and, and we're still not there right we're still on the track we're still trying to figure it out and I think that if you look at, you know, this, the visions of freedom on the track, you're trying to gather some voices, which is the, the next theme in our concepts, right? Absolutely. We've pulled a couple of different collections that are more modern that speak to voices. There are a series of records that reflect in one that I pulled, the voices of, of women in North Carolina as they sought leadership roles in the direction of the state. And I think it really provides a through line to modern voices working on the same issues. So I'm going to take us in time to 1963. Governor Sanford creates something called the Council on the Status of Women. He creates it from an executive order. And it was uh, really created to surface the difficulties faced by women in the state and provide recommendations on how to rectify those problems. And This is some language from the executive order. It is necessary to reconsider the role of today's woman in relation to today's trends and needs. The modern woman performs a variety of tasks and combinations of roles. However, her work is sometimes made difficult by outmoded attitudes and practices. So I thought that was kind of interesting. But the commission itself 
was really not just sitting around, you know, having tea. They were a very active group. You have a commission that's gathering data. They have various subcommittees. They're looking at employment, education, social concerns, volunteerism, the law as it relates to women. There's a section of their work on minority women and the, and the special challenges that they faced. So they were really doing a lot of robust work. They organized around these committees. And then in 1964, they create their first report. That's quite an interesting report. Also available in our digital collections if you want to look at it and read it. It's organized as they kind of organize their, their work. So there's different topics. And there's an essay or um, investigation of the problems that they uncovered in each of these areas. And then there's recommendations in each section. So the organization of it kind of reflects the organization of the council itself. And this is not what I would call a puff piece. There's some hard-hitting recommendations for 1964. I pulled out a couple that I thought speak to, you know, just struggles that continue today. So, for example, there's a section on employment, and one of their recommendations is for equal pay legislation and expansion of training and educational opportunities. So 1964, they're saying we need equal pay for women and men. This is another interesting one. They wanted a recommendation to amend North Carolina's minimum wage law to extend coverage to such groups as elementary institutions, a lot of service industries like ushers, doormen, concession attendants, cashiers and theaters, employees in hospitals and nursing homes, and domestic workers. So they're saying, hey, we need to pay all of these types of positions a minimum wage. Those are some interesting recommendations for 1964, I, I felt like. I spent some time reading the section on the uh, minority women and I found it interesting that right off the bat, in the opening section, they're highlighting that discrimination casts a pall over basically everything, every aspect of lives of African American and American Indian women. And so they're acknowledging that this is an extra hurdle on top of what we're already highlighting in the report. And so another piece that I found fascinating that they had uncovered as a problem and then it has a subsequent recommendation is they said studies were showing that domestic workers, and a lot of African-American women were employed as domestic workers at that time, were often not informed of their rights in, with Social Security. So employers were basically potentially cheating them out of Social Security benefits by not filing that pay. And so that's one of the direct recommendations is there needed to be a distinctive education effort aimed at domestic workers to say, hey, here are your rights under federal Social Security legislation and make sure your employer is contributing to that for your benefit. They had a whole subsection on uh, Indian women and, and the challenges that they faced. When you get to the recommendations page in, in this section, I found it interesting that one of the first things they highlighted and called for was that civic groups and other professional organizations should accept non-white members. So all these you know, private groups and organizations are saying, hey, you would benefit from having a bigger variety of membership. Similarly, they called on political parties to do a much better job of outreach to women and specifically to minority women to get them involved in politics and encourage them to run for office. That seems a little bit radical in 64 when we're still struggling with very distinct voter rights challenges to, to say we're encouraging political parties to have uh, minority women run for office. So that I thought that was a, an interesting highlight too from the document. So they're just really, it was very comprehensive. They talk about the need to maybe encourage the, the North Carolina Film Board to do a movie about 
African-American women who are successful in their field to serve as a model and an inspiration to, you know, younger women. So there's just a wide variety of recommendations that they make in there. This council, you know, really lives on today. It's the origin of the North Carolina Council for Women today, which is administered by the Department of Administration. And they're still doing really good work. And they're still following this model of producing uh, major reports. Now their, their reports are organized into major categories like employments and, employment and earnings, health and wellness, and political participation. But they're still working at these issues and trying to enact change. So I, I think to me this is really an example of a group of voices that were thoughtful, thorough in their investigation, in their recommendations, and then that leads to something that continues today. It doesn't just go away after one year and everyone says, oh, that's great. Thanks for that report on women. We'll file this away on the bookshelf. Um, you know, that, that work really continues. And similarly, they call on, in the report, in the 1964 report, they call on other groups that are acting in this, in this same space to lobby for change in our society. And one of those groups is the Good Neighbor Council, also a Sanford creation. And I'm happy to let Becky talk about the Good Neighbor Council and how they did kind of parallel work to the Council on the Status of Women. Thanks, Sarah. At the same time Governor Sanford created the council that Sarah was just talking about, he also worked towards creating the Good Neighbor Council. And again, this is another council that was developed by executive order and statutes the council was made up of 20 citizens, and they were appointed by the governor. It was a very diverse council for the time. Again, this is 1963. And the first chairman and executive director, his name was David Coltrane. And, and the impression I get from him reading um, some of the speeches that I'm going to talk about a little bit later is that he, you know, he was a guy to be reckoned with. He was like a force of nature. And I think that was what was needed for this particular council. And let me describe what the the goals of the council were and are, because it still exists in a different form today. The main purpose set forth in the statute, the enabling statute to the council, um, were as follows. To study the problems in the area of human relations. And what they mean by that is the, like a lot of what Sarah mentioned about the diversity don't make racial distinctions. You hire the qualified person. So, and in, in the in the point two is to get people qualified to be able to be employed in these higher level jobs. Also, to promote equality of opportunity for all citizens, regardless of race. To promote understanding, respect, and goodwill among all citizens, and to promote channels of communications between racial groups and economic situations to encourage the employment of qualified people without regard to race, to encourage youth to be better trained and qualified for employment, to enlist the cooperation and assistance of all state and local government officials in obtaining the state, the state council's mission. So we're going to get everybody involved. We're not going to just sit here at the top level of the state and, and talk about it. We're going to get all levels of government involved. And we're also going to get all levels of citizens involved because Governor Sanford also encouraged the creation of local good neighbor councils by counties and localities. By 1964, there were 54 municipal biracial groups. And then by 1968, there were 75 of them. So it was, a, it was something that grew over the decade and they continue to promote this council or this 
group of mission statements and work among state and local officials to and citizens to encourage this. The Good Neighbor Council was eventually made into the Human Relations Commission in 1971, and then it was renamed in 1975 to the Human Relations Council. And its final, what it is today, which was established in 1989, which is the Human Relations Commission. So it has survived to today as well. And it, the mission is still basically the same. And what we've done with the council records is we've digitized them. And so they are available in our digital collection for people to take a look at. There's a couple of speeches that I wanted to focus on here because they kind of encapsulate the, the mission statement and the work that was going on within the council itself. And this is where I get my impression of Mr. Coltrane is because these are speeches that he delivered in the course of 1968. So one was in January of 68 where he spoke with a group of industry officials in South Carolina, in Greenville, South Carolina. And he's talking about the need for diversity in the workplace, the need to hire qualified workers regardless of race. But he does spend time in this discussion talking about the race issue. I never thought I would quote Richard Nixon but he quoted Richard Nixon, so I want to quote Richard Nixon because I think it encapsulates the strife, the racial strife that's going on in, in 1968. So Richard Nixon states, or he states that Richard Nixon states, that the war in the making between blacks and whites in the United States is more important than the war in Vietnam. And if not solved, it will not matter what happens in Vietnam. He goes on to say, Richard Nixon goes on to say, that the war in Asia has limited means and limited goals. The war at home is a war for the survival of a free society. So getting back to that ideal of what the United States was formed on, which is that ideal of a free society where everyone has equal opportunity. I think what, that, what Mr. Coltrane was trying to say in quoting Richard Nixon is we can't not focus on desegregation. We can't not focus on equal opportunity. We've got to focus on these things to create a more equitable society. And then he did a speech in May of 1968 to a group of merchants in Charlotte, North Carolina. And this is right after Martin Luther King was assassinated. And the tone of his speech I won't say it's combative, but it's, it's resourceful in the sense of he's still going, okay, he acknowledges the strife, he acknowledges the struggle, he acknowledges the, the unrest that's going on in the nation, the riots, all of those kind of things. But he, he really focuses and clenches down on the role of the Good Neighbor Council and being able to open lines of communication to be able to handle discord on a local level using the resources that we have and the, and the power of the officials in the local level and the community groups getting together, open lines of communication. And I think that, I think it's a, it's a good read in the sense of it really allows you to understand that what we've encountered in the last year is, is not new but it is, it, is a, it is a way of opening discourse. It's a way of people coming together at a table and coming to a common resolution. And I really felt that in his 
in his in those two speeches that what he was wanting and what the Good Camera Council was doing all along within the local area was building those lines of communication and also finding ways that all groups could get together for a better, a more perfect union. I encourage people to actually to go and look at these collections, both of these collections, and think about them in terms of 2022 and see that we're still working towards that more perfect union. That's excellent. I think that that's exactly something we should encourage across all of these, but particularly maybe these last two that you just mentioned is that, you know, all of these documents kind of show us who we are, who we were, who we are, uh, who we are trying to be. I think that that's that kind of encompasses sort of what 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 America 250 as a as an event and as, as as who we are as a country. And so I think, you know, you're talking about all these different items and events. How do we know what to include in the in the celebration in, in America 250 and then how do we program around it? Well, I think we're spending the years coming up to the commemoration in doing some deep dives into our collections and looking for materials that maybe have been underused or looking for materials where we can dig in and, as you your last point, make connections to the larger arc of, of our history, even if they're more modern collections. So we're taking some time to interrogate what we've got and, and look for things that might be useful to tell broad stories and to you know when Becky was spending the time talking about the soldiers I think that's another important point we certainly want to talk about John Adams thoughts on government and get out the vault items but it's just as interesting to find troop returns or affidavits of service or you know witness statements things like that that speak to everybody's experience so we're trying to be pretty broad and include a lot of things and we're hoping with the commemoration that we could present these materials in a variety of ways. They might be included in a lesson plan. They might be included in a a podcast like today. They might be in a program. They might be digitized and online. It might be all those things. So online exhibits, traveling exhibits. So we're hoping to just uncover many things, provide those to folks because different stories, different time periods, different formats spark people in different ways. And we want to make sure we have a lot of things that can spark your imagination and raise questions and encourage you to seek more information. That's kind of, I think, a a good way to summarize it. Yeah, it's terrific. I think, you know, we all love to look at the the, the big shots, the, you know, Mm -hmm. the big wigs out there, the John Adams, the leadership. But if, if you don't have everyday people, everyday North Carolinians, who are these people creating stuff for? Nobody. It's not, it's not, you have to have everybody throughout in order to create this more perfect union, as, as, we, mm-hmm. as we, we like to call it. And so I, I think that what we're doing here is terrific. I really encourage people to go back and look at all these different documents that you, you all highlighted. You know, stay tuned for the programs that are coming out. Spark your imagination. Get involved and come to the archives. Absolutely. And from the department's main webpage, you can find a link to these uh, America 250th efforts and resources that would direct you to a lot of places in the department and a lot of the things that we're doing. Becky's got a lot of things on the schedule for digitization. So the last two collections that we just highlighted have major selections that are in our digital collections as well. So that's another piece to this. As we're finding things, we're trying to make sure that they're going to be accessible broadly and 
while we encourage and love to have people come into the search room, there is absolutely nothing like holding that troop return from the war. We also acknowledge that folks have need to access things online. So we're trying to make sure that things are as accessible as possible, no matter how you want to do that. That's right. Our stuff's historic, but we're modern. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I think, too, that as we do go through these collections and do that deep dive, if we find gems, we're probably going to post some blog posts as well. Right. So keep, you know, keep, just keep monitoring all of our social media channels, and you will probably find something that's 250th related one way or the other. Yeah, terrific. It sounds like if you're interested in, you know, America 250 years ago, you'll find stuff. But, you know, if you're interested in America now, you'll find stuff, too. So keep an eye out. uh, And we're looking forward to what comes out, you know, here in the next couple of years. Sounds good. All right. Do we have anything else we want to cover today? I would add one other thing to the 250th commemoration discussion, and that's the archives is fortunate to be one piece in a major tapestry that is the entire Department of Natural and Cultural Resources. So you've heard a lot about documents and our resources that we have, but you know, multiply that times all of our divisions. Everybody is participating and going to be contributing, and we certainly have fabulous Revolutionary War era historic sites. We've got the museum system with artifacts from the time period. We've got parks that include events from the Revolutionary War. You know, we've got music, we've got art. All these things can help celebrate our commemoration. So we will all be participating. So definitely check out the website and and get a fuller picture of what all of our divisions are doing across natural and cultural resources. That's well put. I think think that's a great way to end. I want to thank you both for your time today, for your knowledge, for bringing us these documents, these events, and for giving us a taste of America 250. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to this special hour-long episode and season finale of Connecting the Docs, Unprocessed, a production of staff members of the State Archives of North Carolina. Special thanks this week to Sarah Kuntz and Becky McGee Langford, to our producer, Brooke Chuka, and to the person behind the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dodson. And I'm your host, John Horan. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs, Unprocessed. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com. For more news and information, please visit our website, archives.ncdcr.gov.